Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story this week, where we'll look at how movies depicted historical events that happened between February 13th and February 19th. Let's get into it. February 13th, 1917, Paris, France. A well-dressed woman walks down the hospital stairs. It's a military hospital, or at least there are a lot of soldiers there. Behind her, a man's heavy steps seem to worry her. She walks a little faster. He's still right behind her. She turns to a couple soldiers chatting with each other on the steps and tells them that the man behind her has been molesting her. They immediately spring to attention, delaying the man to ask him what's going on. And she uses this as an excuse to slip down and into a cab on the street. She tells the driver to take her to Paris immediately. Just then, she notices someone else is in the car with her. It's the head of the French spy bureau, a man named Dubois. He's played by C. Henry Gordon in the film. He tells the woman that he has a warrant for her arrest, to which she smirks and says, you'd better be careful or he'll have to apologize again. The woman in this scene is Mata Hari. She's played by Greta Garbo in the 1931 film simply called Mata Hari. This depiction is not very accurate to what really happened, but it is true on February 13th, 1917, that the real Mata Hari was arrested. And the movie is correct to hint at the idea of her being arrested prior to this one happening in February, although it was not necessarily by the French, like the movie implies. That arrest was in November of 1916 when the Scotland Yard arrested her and took her to London, where she eventually admitted to working with the Deuxième Bureau or the Second Bureau. That was the French intelligence service, kind of like England has MI6 and the United States has the CIA. Unknown to her, though, the Second Bureau was suspicious of Mata Hari that she might actually be working for the Germans. Remember, all of this is happening during World War I. The next month, in December of 1916, the French allowed Matahari to get the name of six spies that they also suspected as being double agents working for the Germans. When the French later decrypted communications from the Germans with those names and other activities that closely matched Matahari's activities, they decided to arrest her. But the arrest did not happen in the back of a car like we see in the movie. On February 13, 1917, Matahari was arrested at her hotel room in Paris. She was put on trial, and although the French and British tried to offer evidence to prove that she was a German spy, they didn't, have, they didn't really have anything that was damning evidence. Nevertheless, she was executed by a French firing squad on October 15, 1917, at the age of 41. Since then, many people have put forward thoughts, opinions, documents, reports, and plenty more to suggest that she was a scapegoat and that her lifestyle as an exotic dancer and mistress, while her seductive powers may have helped her as a spy, they didn't help the intelligence services believe her innocence. If you want to watch the depiction this week, the arrest happens at about an hour and 14 minutes into the 1931 movie simply called Mata Hari. And if you want to learn more about the true story, we covered that movie on episode number 74 of Based on a True Story. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. 
access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. February 14th, 1929, Chicago, Illinois. The snow is coming down pretty hard outside. We could see that in the scenes leading up to our event, but now the movie takes us inside a room with brick walls. This isn't a room that's all warm and cozy while it's snowing outside. No, this is a workshop. Or perhaps calling it a warehouse or a garage would be better because as the camera changes angles, we can see at least two cars, workbenches, and other various tools. Two cops burst into the room with guns drawn. We can see there are multiple men in the room, not just the one man who was by the door when the cops came in, although the movie makes it hard to tell exactly how many men there are in the room, but we can tell that they're all wearing the same overcoats that they'd wear outside on a cold day like today. Most of them are wearing the kind of hats that you'd expect gangsters in the 1920s to be wearing. The two cops with guns drawn order everyone in the room to line up against one of the walls. The men talk back to the cops, but they begrudgingly do as they're told. Then one of the cops notices another guy in one of the cars. He tries to tell the cop that he's just a mechanic who works the cars here, doesn't have anything to do with the people here. The cop doesn't care. He grabs the mechanic by the collar and pushes him to the wall with the rest of the men lined up. Now we can see that there are seven men, including the mechanic, lined up against the wall. The cops tell the men to place their hands on the wall and lean on it. Again, The seven men are reluctant, but they do as they're told. One of the cops keeps his gun on the men, while the other cop goes one by one to pat down the men leaning on the wall. One of them has a handgun, so the cop takes it. Another, it looks like maybe he's either taking another handgun or maybe it's his wallet. The movements are too fast to really tell for sure. As he nears the last guy, we can see the other cop in the room, kind of in the background, making his way to the door. He opens it and waves in two other men. These are not cops, or at least they're not dressed in uniform. They're wearing long overcoats and hats like the men up against the wall are. And the two men are carrying huge submachine guns with the round drum magazine. The other seven men are still facing the wall, so they can't see the men who just entered. The cops put away their handguns and then pull out shotguns, keeping them pointed at the men lined up against the wall. Seven men in dark overcoats leaning up against the wall with both hands, so they're facing the wall. And behind them in the room, now there are four men, two cops with shotguns and two other men with machine guns. The four men look at each other. Then they all open fire. They keep shooting even after all the men are slumped over on the ground. It's obvious they want to make sure no one is left alive. This depiction comes from a movie released in 1967 that was named after the event we just heard described, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And while it is true that the event really did happen, the movie has its own dramatic license to fill in some holes. The reason for that is simply because we don't really know the full story of exactly what happened inside that Lincoln Park neighborhood garage 
on Clark Street at 10.30 a.m. on February 14th, 1929. You see, the true story of what we now know as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre is something that involves organized crime and gangs, more specifically, the Chicago mob led by Al Capone. Since there's organized crime involved, we simply don't know everything about it, and we probably won't ever know the entire story. For a little historical context, this was during Prohibition, so liquor was illegal in the United States. Organized crime leaders in cities like Chicago were making a lot of money off importing alcohol, and one of those was the Chicago Outfit, a crime syndicate led by Al Capone. So even though we don't know for sure if it was Al Capone who ordered the hit, most people assumed that he was behind it because the victims were all a part of Bug Moran's Northside gang. That was a rival gang to Al Capone's. As the story goes, the Northside gang had supposedly hijacked some of the Chicago Outfit's whiskey. The massacre was retaliation as well as an attempt at killing Bugs Moran himself, the leader of the Northside gang. However, Bugs was running late. We didn't cover this in the depiction that we just heard from the movie, but in the movie, we do see a scene where there are three men walking up to the building when they see cops pull up and then they turn around and go get some coffee. That happened too. When Bugs Moran saw a police car near the building, they instead turned around and went to a nearby coffee shop. And the movie also got some other things correct about the massacre, like how many people were involved. From the police investigation into the evidence left behind and eyewitness accounts, we know that there were four men who carried out the massacre. Just like we see in the movie, two of them were dressed as police officers. Although we don't really know if they actually were real police officers or not, some have suggested that they were, and the Chicago police were involved in retaliation for an officer's child being killed earlier. But we don't know if that's true or not. We do know that the four men used two shotguns and two Thompson submachine guns, just like we see in the movie, though. And they did keep shooting even after the seven men fell to the ground. But surprisingly, one of the men survived. That was an enforcer in the Northside gang, Frank Gusenberg, but he refused to identify his killers before he died three hours later. Oh, and in the movie, we see a dog in the room with them. And since Frank died a few hours later, that left Highball, that was the dog's name, as the only survivor of the massacre. And I guess you could say the wall itself, too. You can see the blood-stained wall at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas, Nevada. If you want to watch the event this week, check out the 1967 movie called The St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The policeman burst into the room at the end of the movie around an hour and 27 minutes. February 18th, 1878, New Mexico. It's an overcast morning out in the open country. The sun isn't fully up yet, but in the dark of the morning, we can still make out seven figures making their way down the road. Six are on horseback, riding along with a man in a horse-drawn cart. As they come over a slight hill, one of the men on horseback obviously notices something ahead. Guns pulled, they're on high alert now. They ride ahead of the man on the cart to check out a small grove of trees. Then, more men on horseback appear from behind the man in the cart, who is now alone on the horizon. The camera focuses in on a close shot of Emilio Estevez's character, William H. Bonney, as he notices the new men arriving behind the man in the cart. Then there's a brief close-up of the man in the cart. It's Terrence Stamp's character, John Tunstall. From afar, we can see the men fire on Tunstall, killing him in cold blood. Then the men who killed Tunstall chase after the six men on horseback who are forced to run away. 
This depiction from 1988's Young Guns happened this week in history on February 18th, 1878, but it did not happen the way that we see it in the movie. There were seven men in the true story. They just weren't riding along the road with a cart like we see in the movie. They were driving horses from John Tunstall's ranch. The Lincoln sheriff had organized a posse to connect Tunstall's cattle onto a warrant against one of his business partners. But when the posse got to Tunstall's ranch, they found that he wasn't there and his horses weren't there either. So they went to try to find him. They caught up with him and the seven men were spread out quite a ways as they were driving the horses. Three of the deputies confronted Tunstall and, well, only the three deputies came out of it alive. We don't know the specifics of the confrontation. Was Tunstall being defiant? Did he surrender? Did the deputies fire on him unprovoked like we see in the movie? We don't know. What we do know is that Tunstall was shot twice, once in the chest and another in his head. He died instantly, less than three weeks before his 25th birthday. After his death, William Bonney would take up his own path to bring Tunstall's killers to justice. Since they were lawmen, though, that proved easier said than done. Tunstall's death was the start of what we now know as the Lincoln County War and led to Bonney leading a group of men called the Regulators as he took on his own nickname, Billy the Kid. If you want to watch the event this week, it's at about 23 minutes into the 1988 movie, Young Guns. If you want to take a deeper dive into the true story, check out episode number 146 of Based on a True Story, where we cover the Young Guns movie. This episode of Based on a True Story this week was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. Before I let you go, they're not historical events, but again, there were some birthdays this week for people who have been mentioned in movies or TV shows. On February 14th, 1817, Frederick Douglass was born in Talbot County, Maryland. Or maybe he was born in 1818. We don't really know his birth year for sure because, well, they didn't keep track of things like that for slaves. He was a former slave who became a famous abolitionist, reformer, writer, statesman, and many other titles. He was played by Raymond St. Jacques in the 1989 movie Glory that we learned about on Based on a True Story episode number 169. On February 15th, 1874, Ernest Shackleton was born in Kilka, Ireland. He was a famous explorer who is perhaps best known for his expeditions to Antarctica. He's played by Kenneth Branagh in the 2002 two-part miniseries named after him called Shackleton. On February 18, 1898, Enzo Ferrari was born in Modena, Italy. Although his official birth certificate says he was born on February 20th, As the story goes, he was born during a bad snowstorm. So even though he was born on the 18th, his father couldn't make it to register the birth until the 20th. Enzo Ferrari was played by Remo Girone in the 2019 movie Ford vs. Ferrari. If you're finding some value in Based on a True Story, you can support the podcast over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. There you can also learn how to get ad-free versions and help to keep the show going. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.